0: afternoon, folks. We are here today for another episode of Coffee with Friends, and I'm being joined by a lovely neurodivergent therapist that I met on TikTok, of all places, and we've had some very interesting discussions. I've been a guest on their podcast. I would like to introduce you to Rob.
1: Hi. Nice to meet everybody.
0: Hi, Rob. I'm so glad you could join us today. It means a lot. Um, to be able to have these conversations about um, trauma and how it affects us. So with that being said, would you like to share a little bit about yourself and your background and your education?
1: Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So my name is Rob Uh, on TikTok. I go by the name Therapy Rob. Um, I have, uh, I've been a therapist um, licensed since 2020. I got my master's uh, in the height of the pandemic. Um, and so I've been at that for a few years now, um, a couple months away from my full independent licensure, which I'm very excited about. Um, before that, uh, I had gotten my bachelor's in psychology, uh, from the St. Mary's College of Maryland, um, long journey to, uh, eventually get my degree, um, neurodivergency definitely impacted the way that I was able to kind of get through college, um, And just I was working through a lot of uh, a lot of various uh, various traumas, everything like that at the time. Um, And yeah, uh, now for the past year or so, I've also been running a TikTok page where we talk a lot about trauma, neurodivergency, um, just mental health in general. Uh, And it's been uh, a really, really wonderful experience.
0: Thank you for that. That really means a lot. I think we need to have conversations about neurodivergency and trauma and how it affects people because like one of the things that I was looking for at one point in time, I was trying to find like scholarly articles on like neurodivergence and trauma and like how that affects people. Like I myself am neurodivergent as well. And I think we we both know that. But for our audience and listeners, just a reminder, like I am also neurodivergent. And when you have trauma and and all of that, like you, you mentioned briefly that it affects like your ability, like it affected your ability to, like how did it affect you to get your master's degree and your degree in psychology?
1: Yeah, um, so when I first went off to college, you know, high school was decent enough. I felt supported by my friends and everyone there, but I had a lot of things going on at home that, um, you know, when I was finally able to go to college, it felt like I had kind of escaped from it. Um, and when I had finally escaped from that kind of an environment, it was now a matter of kind of being face to face with what was left over without really having that support system available to me that I previously had. And Ooh. so... Yeah, it was, it was a lot. And so for me to be able to cope with things, you know, I turned to substance abuse primarily as a way of kind of working with it. And it was also the way that I had simultaneously gained acceptance from the people around me. And so it was like this perfect mess of like, I need people that care about me. I need a support system here. I don't have it because I was born in Maryland and I went up to Long Island for, uh, for my bachelor's. Um, and so I fell into that. And this is all also combined with the fact that, you know, in high school, I was able to, I had all these different outlets, you know, I was involved in clubs, I was involved in sports all the time. And then now it was just, just the academics. And I, I think the pressure of the moment was a lot. Um, and so I wasn't able to complete my bachelor's at that school, went to community college for a while. Um, and then when I went to the the school that I would eventually graduate from, um, I kind of fell into the same, to the same thing. Like, it was, again, a lot of substance abuse to cope with the things that I was feeling. Um, and it was just so much insecurity about my ability to actually accomplish this. Um, and that fear of inadequacy of not being able to really do this was then so many times confirmed by the fact that things actually weren't going too well. Um, you know, and and I wasn't really taking account of what was going on with me. I wasn't trying to seek accommodations. I wasn't trying to, you know, I I wasn't acknowledging that there was something wrong for the longest time. And it wasn't until I eventually got clean that I was then able to kind of reframe things, get the help that I needed and then come back and be successful in school. Um, and, and so it was, it was a really long journey to kind of get there. I feel like. I've 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 grown a lot as an individual as a result of all of this, but not without a lot of a lot of hardship coming from mm-hmm. So what I heard was that you
0: you fell into um, using coping skills. One of your coping skills was substance abuse, mm-hmm. and that was the one that um, sustained you rather than seeking, which kind of goes into denial. Mm-hmm. is like we're in denial about our um, things sometimes it can be like our abilities we can have denial about that um but denial is also a coping skill believe it or not mm-hmm. it doesn't i'm i'm it is what it is but you you had denial you had substance abuse and you were trying to recreate like a support for you so that you could successfully graduate because of past traumas, like in the previous environment that you were in that were still affecting you. But there may also have been an element of denial in that Mm -hmm. where maybe you didn't acknowledge that it was a traumatic environment.
1: Yeah. It took me a very long time to, I mean, even after, you know, the point of finding, Finding other coping skills outside of the substance abuse, you know, I, I went into, I, I started playing rugby with my friends, you know, I found a lot of camaraderie in that, in that sport and a lot of love there um, that really helped to support me and, and get me through things. Um, even within all of that, I didn't really come to terms with the fact that what I had was trauma until, I mean, maybe... 2018 or so like, and I'd entered into college in like 2011. Um, and so it, it was something that I continuously tried to kind of downplay because one of the ways that I've always tried to cope with things. And one of the things that's led to a lot of shame in my life has been these like perfectionistic tendencies, because in my household, if I'm perfect, if I am performing then nobody can be upset with me. Nobody can be angry with me. I'm not going to have to experience trauma. But if I start to fall short, that is when people are going to get angry. That's when I'm going to have to deal with it. And so this constant, yeah, my, my camera's been doing that a little bit. So it was like this constant thing of like, I have to be perfect all the time. Nothing can ever be wrong. And if anything is wrong, that's a really, really big problem. And so you know, I just, yeah, I pushed it away. I, I buried it. I tried to not look at it. Um, and, you know, as we understand with trauma, it expresses itself, whether you are cognitively recognizing it or not. Um, and so it was, you know, it was still yeah. there. It's still there. Because
0: while denial is a coping skill, wouldn't you say that whether we acknowledge it like what you're saying when you say whether we acknowledge it cognitively or not what you're saying is whether we say that we experience trauma or not our bodies and our brains remember the trauma that we experienced
1: Mm -hmm. absolutely just like the, the uh
0: yeah doesn't that get
1: into the neurobiology of trauma it does it does for sure um i mean the the way that the brain functions completely Changes as a result of trauma, um, especially you know when we're talking about um, you know the the more chronic forms of trauma as well as um, the uh, as, as well as complex trauma. Um, you know the brain changes a lot over time because the brain, as a result of you know neuroplasticity, our brain has to adapt to what is going on in our environments. And so a lot of times when we talk about trauma, and the way that I had formerly understood it was that if I have trauma, that means I'm broken. But in fact, it is our brain adapting in a very magnificent way to being able to meet the needs of the environment. So we get things like the, the there are a lot of pieces that go into it, but what, what happens in a, lot of, uh, in a lot of cases is the amygdala, which handles a lot of the emotional context of what is going on, allows us to have these stress responses. It gets very highly activated a lot easily, a lot more easily and for much longer periods of time and so people can you know totally dissociate people can panic people can go into that fight or flight mode that allows for them to escape the situation allows for them to fight the situation it allows for them to kind of block out what is going on to them and what also happens is the prefrontal cortex gets a little bit a little bit weaker as a result which can produce Um, Some of the symptoms that look a lot like ADHD at times, and it's one of the reasons why, diagnostically, we have to be so careful about the questions that we're asking because concentration can really lack, impulsivity can go up, um, and that prefrontal cortex isn't able to keep the amygdala in check as much as it usually does, and this is important. Because when you think about survival, if you're consistently in a traumatic environment, it's not important that you're thinking things through. It's not important for you to be making decision making, you know, going through your whole pros and cons process. No, there's trauma right in front of you. You need to react quickly. You need to be hypervigilant. You need to be ready to react at any one point. And while this is very, very adaptive in these scenarios, when the rules of the environment change and we're no longer in those traumatic settings, our brain is still reacting as if the trauma is going on. And so whether we have acknowledged it or not, the brain continues to operate as if it is happening. Um, and that can go on for some time until we are able to find ways of, of of teaching the brain something different.
0: Yep. Thank you for explaining all of that for our listeners. That means a Absolutely. lot. I did also do a, a trauma training. I want to ask you about this because I did a sure. trauma training in October of last year where... Um, the the doctor that was holding it, one of the things that she brought up was, I believe it was like Gina Fisher or something. Yes. First name started with the J. Okay. And yeah. one of the responses that she talked about, like was shame as a trauma response. Have you ever heard of that? Are you familiar with that concept?
1: Yeah. um, I have a training coming up with her actually very soon. um, So, yeah, shame is a big thing, um, especially within complex PTSD, um, and it's one of the, it's one of the really difficult things for us to try to tackle. I think with trauma, um, I always kind of bring it back to the fact that we are all really kind of, we're very natural problem solvers, and we're very natural kind of, um, we try to make sense of what is going on in our environment, and so one of the aspects of where shame can come in. Is that as I'm trying to figure out why would something like this happen to me? Why is it that me, out of anybody, had to suffer the way that I suffered? And unfortunately, a lot of the time, as a result of the traumatic, invalidating experiences that we've had in the environments that we were in, unfortunately, sometimes that answer ends up being, well, it was me. Um, And so that shame can come out. So, thank you. Thank you for that.
0: Um, But in regards to shame. So I was at a Amish abuse awareness meeting where somebody asked, what should we teach our kid? And um, mm-hmm. our children, right? It's, it's about abuse awareness. And they said, hmm. And to translate that, it means teach your children to be ashamed hmm. and work hard. Okay. I don't see how that's going to prevent abuse, but do you think it is more likely? Because logically in my head, when I learned about the shame um, response from her, one of the things that I went to and I connected dots with is like, maybe this could explain why so many survivors from these communities that have inherently taught a shame-based system of teaching your children Maybe this could explain why these children are experiencing so much of a shame-based trauma response. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, is is it
0: it possible?
1: Yeah, I I think that that would I think that that would make a lot of sense. um, That we would kind of carry on that message, whether consciously or probably more likely unconsciously. um, That yeah, I I would I would have to guess. That we would. Okay, and the and the other question that
0: I have in regards to that is so like, how does trauma affect like the development of children? Are you like, how does that work?
1: Mm. Yeah. Can you so speak to that? I I can to I, I can to an, to an extent. Um, so with so of course we we do have the the neurological changes that happen as a result of you know as a result of trauma Um, one of the big things uh, that we see as a result of complex trauma within childhood uh, can be sometimes some of the dissociative disorders so you know dissociative identity uh, or some some of the dissociative disorders so like dissociative identity disorder um, osdd um, a lot of that kind of stuff can happen as we are trying to form this one kind of cohesive um, cohesive kind of state of existence um, sometimes that that process can get disrupted, and so that can result in, uh, in those kinds of things. Um, it can result in some changes in the way that we attach to other people. Um, so if all things are supportive, if we are able to explore and we are supported by our caregivers, we usually have that secure form of attachment. Um, but we can very quickly go into um, the avoidant, anxious, or disorganized forms of attachment as a result of trauma. Um, And really, I mean, our our childhoods are what give us the foundation for the way that we understand ourselves and the world. And so depending on what messages we get there and depending on how our environment and the people around us treat us, that sets the foundation on which we build everything else. And trying to uproot that foundation can be very difficult later on, especially when there's so much emotional context that was added into this as a result of the trauma.
0: That's very true. Thank you. We do have some comments. One of our commenters says, um, so true, Conscious, conscious awareness is not required for us to experience a trauma response. I think that's really critical to discuss that because trauma can be, you know, car accidents to world events to even like the COVID pandemic, like, that was really traumatic for me. I, I will be honest about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and further, it's like our brains act like they exist outside of time. That's fascinating. Yes, our brains are a wonderful thing. They're hardwired for survival. And I, I think, too, one of the things that I like to talk about a little bit is that whether we recognize it or believe it or not, when we respond with any of those trauma responses, it's because our body has decided we are in danger and now we need these responses so we can continue survive to survive. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong in saying that? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Like that's that's really it. Mm-hmm. And another commenter asks, kind of confused, teaching children to be ashamed was suggested as being helpful. Yes, yes, it was actually suggested by the Amish ministry at the local church at this meeting, it was suggested as being helpful. I grew up in that environment for the record. So I wouldn't say that teaching your children to be ashamed is actually helpful, to be quite frank. Mm -hmm. So there's other things we can teach our kids, right? But like, that wouldn't be one of the ones that we would recommend. Right. So thank you for sharing that, all of that, that, that is a lot. So one of the things I really wanted to get into a little bit is like, how does trauma affect people?
1: Mm. Um, I think the, the easier question is even, I mean, how does trauma (laughs) not affect people? (laughs) Um, I mean, it, it's, it's really wild, and because I mean, trauma just changes everything about us. I mean, it can, it changes the way that we regulate ourselves. It changes the way that we express ourselves. It changes the way we communicate, how we form relationships with people. Um, I mean, it changes the way that we even dream. Like it, there's no real, there's no real way out of how trauma affects us. Like even today, like I find the consequences of my trauma in so many of just random things that I do. Like if a cabinet shuts too hard, I will go into a fight or flight response. If I shut the cabinet too hard, I will go into a fight or flight response. And the reasons for it are so different. Um, You know, if when I'm walking around my house, sometimes if I notice that I'm feeling more anxious than usual, I will like tiptoe around and I will try not to make too much noise because for me, that meant that danger was going to come if I was too loud um you know it it affects us in so many ways that we a lot of times aren't even all that aware of um and so it's yeah it it hits pretty much everywhere
0: so the life coach in me wants to ask (laughs) (laughs) Did you perhaps maybe have a practice of making yourself as small and quiet and invisible as possible to avoid conflict in your home as you grew up?
1: Yes, a hundred percent. Like I said, you know, one of the ways that I adapted to things was by being perfect because that's all I wanted people to see. You know, if people just saw the perfect things that I was doing, then I couldn't get into any trouble, you know, things would be okay. Um, But, you know, Any other time when I was in within my home, like there would be, I I still remember so vividly, like the visceral reaction of like, when I, so when I had gotten to the point in my life where I could drive, I would, you know, pull into my driveway and I would immediately be looking for the pickup truck in the driveway. And when I wouldn't see the pickup truck, it would be like euphoria. Like I can go to my room, I can get in there and I don't have to talk to anybody. And the gut wrenching feeling of, starting to pull down that driveway going around the little bend and seeing that pickup truck there. It's, I, I wanted to completely just not exist when I was at home, um, make as little noise as possible. It, when it was time for dinner, we all still ate together as a family, but I would go up there. I would eat as fast as I possibly could. And I would go downstairs. I still eat as fast as I possibly can. Um, you know, I, yeah, I, I knew where every Creek in the house was. I knew which step to not step on. I, I was incredible. Yep. Yep.
0: Okay. So is it okay for you to make noise today?
1: I'm trying to get better at it. I'm trying to get better at it. It's still a process, Um. you know, but I, I find that I am far more noisy than I used to be. Um, sometimes, to my partner's discontent, because <laughs> uh, sometimes you know, <laughs> just the noise has got to come out, and I gotta just express who I am. And you know, so sometimes it's too early for that. But I, I have gotten a lot better at it. Um, you know, within my friend groups, I'm I can be a pretty loud guy. You know, it's uh, we've we've gotten a lot better at it. Well, you definitely deserve to make noise,
0: and you have a voice. And your voice is very powerful. And one of our commenters says, sounds like you have learned to identify your tells. So important when learning to work through with and through our trauma responses. Correct. Like this is learning to live with trauma is is like really, really important to be able to know like, hey, like if I do this, like sometimes like just being able to have that awareness can be helpful. But also like congratulations, like you're you're working on it, right? It's kind of a journey. Um, there is no linear journey in af- after trauma mm-hmm. like that, is there?
1: No, certainly not. And um, you know, I, I battle with a lot of the uh, a lot of the different components of it at the same time. Like like you had talked about with with shame. Sometimes the the shame can honestly end up getting misdirected in a way where now you know, when I catch myself doing one of those tells the shame can come in and it's like, why are you still doing that? Why are you still reacting this way? And, you know, I can really lack that patience with myself. Um, you know, and so even today as, you know, a trauma informed therapist, you know, someone who's been to therapy for quite a while, I still have to catch that every once in a while. Um, and it's important for us to be able to, to do that as clinicians, especially, um, but also just, it's, you know, it's, like you said, it's not linear. Uh, And, you know, sometimes we go back and forth up and yeah, we can.
0: Yeah, we sure do. And, and the other part of that is, is, and I think this is also really important to say about how trauma affects people is that, for example, Rob and I could have been in the same car accident. Mm -hmm. And one of us could have PTSD, and the other one could not. Now, why Mm -hmm. is that?
1: It is so difficult to tell. Um, So there has been some recent research um, that has identified some changes in the brain just that can sometimes predispose us, um, that some of the brain changes that happen as a result of PTSD might be in smaller ways present before the trauma happens. And so neurologically, that's one of the things that can be identified. Outside of that, there are many there are many factors that can contribute. One of the biggest being um, our support networks. Um, When people have a support network behind them, it is pretty strongly correlated with the severity of PTSD symptoms following a trauma. Um, And so that's one of the really, really big components that I have, that I I did a lot of research on during my bachelor's. Um, And so that's, That's one of the really important ones, but it's a lot of things can, can, can kind of go into who gets PTSD, who doesn't. And honestly, a lot of times, and I would say pretty much all the time, it's, you know, it it could be kind of random and it's, it's important for us to recognize that, um, that sometimes it's just, there wasn't much we could have done to have not had PTSD that it just,
0: it just is
1: exactly, exactly.
0: And, and furthermore, like, I mean, do you have a short list of, like, things that
1: can cause PTSD? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of, like, like risk factors along with the trauma or? I mean, sure. Okay. Um, I mean, so definitely not having that support network can be a risk factor. Um, I think definitely having those messagings of shame around you can contribute. Um, uh, man, I'm really blanking on a lot of these support, uh, on a lot of these risk factors. Um, substance abuse can be one of them. Um, it can make it difficult to, to be able to work through that. Um, yeah, those are just a few that come to mind immediately.
0: Okay. Yeah. What about like traumatic
1: events, like types of traumatic yeah. events that we know? hmm So, Luckily, our understanding of trauma has really expanded um, where, you know, we used to think that PTSD was just something that soldiers got. Um, But now we better understand that really anything that can create a strong emotional reaction can be traumatic for us. And, you know, sometimes this can be like the, the really big events, you know, if you are in an accident or something, you know, if something very significant happens one day, You know, that can absolutely be a traumatic experience, but it can also be a combination of a combination of things, you know, having the same invalidating messages sent at you from a caregiver day in and day out throughout the entirety of your childhood is a traumatic experience. Um, You know, it's sometimes it is one big event that is very easy for us to identify and then people are able to say, well, of course I had PTSD. I was in a war. I was in an accident. And then other times it could be more difficult for us to pinpoint it because it was a combination of so many small things. Um, not small as in like insignificant, but like they aren't as easily noticeable when we think about our about our timeline.
0: Or like even people may not look may not be able to look. Like some people have like physical effects of the trauma, other people may not. And so it can be really easily more easily noticeable. Like when you think about the war veteran who has like Mm -hmm. a a amputee, for example, or somebody who got into some kind of traumatic accident and they, they had an amputation, like that can be more visible than like, Oh, okay. Well, maybe this person might have PTSD, but then the other question that I have is, is there such a thing as chronic PTSD?
1: So, it exists in the literature for sure um so i mean i don't know it's it's not a it's not a part of like the diagnostic piece that i i always consider um but it's like mm, yeah it it exists I, i guess so
0: i mean I, I just have to ask because like yeah. some people have told me that like you know PTSD comes from like or or sent me information that suggests that PTSD comes because you you have demon possession so there's that um but I mean I don't think that there's literature that actually supports that I haven't found it
1: yeah
0: if there is
1: yeah a, a lot of my uh, a lot of my research goes into like the neuroscience behind it um, and so I mean, I can tell you, I, I know I hear complex PTSD talked a lot about within the research. Um, but yeah, with chronic, I don't, you don't hear it as much. I don't really No, I mean, cause okay. when it's, yeah, I mean like for, for me, I, I find that sometimes like when I'm trying to try to, trying to like differentiate when we're talking about trauma, sometimes I prefer to just say that like, yes, that trauma did exist. And that is significant for you. And that's the Mm -hmm. important piece, Um, you know, and so I don't, uh, I I don't differentiate too often.
0: Okay, well, here we go. So what is uh, chronic PTSD? What would the term chronic imply, I guess?
1: Yeah, so I believe in theory, um, chronic PTSD is like, a, a significant stressor or traumatic event occurring repeatedly, whereas like an acute trauma is a single event. Um, so if you're in one car accident, for instance, that would be acute. If you're in multiple, that would be chronic. Um, and then complex is a mixture of many different kinds of traumatic things. So
0: like, for example, in reading my book... Just saying, would you say that was a, a complex? <laughs>
1: yes. Yes, I, I, would, I would put that as complex. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> I just had to throw that out there because mm-hmm. people want to know, like even one of our listeners asked, what's the difference between complex and chronic PTSD? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So as far as I can tell, just in the way that people utilize the terms is that chronic is Both of them are multiple traumas, but chronic is the same trauma over and over again, whereas complex is different forms of trauma. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for
0: clarifying that for our listeners. Yep. Even our listener said, got it. Thanks for clarifying. So on to our next question, which is what types of treatments are available today for PTSD? Because historically we have learned a lot about PTSD, right? But what types of treatments do we have available now?
1: We luckily have so many forms of treatment. Um, not all of them are super readily accessible just yet um, because you know we are still They're, they're still being developed. A lot of them have their foundations that go back decades, but, um, we are just now starting to talk about a lot of them. Um, I think cognitive behavioral therapy has been like the, the standard for pretty much everything for a long time. Um, and there is trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy, um, but along with all of that, I mean, we have EMDR, the Eye Movement Desensitization and uh, um, Reprocessing therapy. We have internal family systems. We have the somatic styles of therapy. Um, I mean, there we we are getting we're getting a lot a lot more available to us, which is I think really really wonderful because they all treatment needs to be individualized and client centered, and so. Some people do really well with the cognitive stuff. Some people really need to be able to get down to, the, um, down to the somatic level of what is my body doing. I need to figure out that part before I can move to anything else. And so it's really nice to be able to have a lot of options available at this point.
0: Yeah. I mean, I remember sitting in the therapist's office 20 years ago and being told that there's like these two options, which one would you right. like to try? And then having right. to figure out which one. And I chose EMDR for those who don't know. I did EMDR therapy. Um, that was a that was a thing. So the other question that I have about the treatments is like, how effective are those treatments? Do we have data that suggests efficiency?
1: Yeah. So, um thus far evidence seems to be pretty supportive of all of those different forms that I've, that I've mentioned Um, in terms of which one is superior to others. I am not familiar with that research right now. Um, But I I have a long list of things that I always, I always want to figure out uh, after these conversations. Um, And so, so far there's a great deal of efficacy in all of those I'm trying to think of if there are any that are not really well evidenced for it, um, which I think is more difficult for me to to think of, because if they don't have good evidence behind them, I probably don't, I, I don't look deeper into them. Um, but yeah, there, there's very good evidence behind all of them. And luckily with, unfortunately, a lot of research is really paywalled. Paywalled. are ever wondering... Yeah, so like like you have to like pay to read the research, which is really important. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um and so people can can fortunately look up like this therapy type like if you typed in like internal family systems PTSD effectiveness. Luckily sometimes we can bring up some really good research. It's always important to figure out which research we pay attention to. Um, but yeah, th- there's yeah. a good bit of evidence out there available now. Yeah. I would, I would agree. Like you can't always
0: Google the effectiveness of the type of therapy you are interested in trying. So Mm -hmm. there are options out there. Um, One of our listeners shares, I found EMDR worked well for me, but the rest didn't help as much because of my neurodivergent brain. Mm -hmm. I will vouch. Same, same. Mm -hmm. Cognitive behavioral therapy was one of the most ineffective things that I did. But I'm also neurodivergent. So we have to take those things into consideration that what works well for one person doesn't necessarily work well for others. Just like right. I, I may have, you know it may have worked well for me. It may have reduced my nightmares. It may have made my life sustainable and meaningful and, and gotten me to a place where I can create a meaningful life, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be the same for Rob, who is also neurodivergent, right? Like it's not going to.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's, one of the really big reasons why that's so important is because sometimes when therapy doesn't work, we can unfortunately go back to that instinct of shame, and so it's very important for people to be able to recognize that not every modality is going to work for everybody, not every therapist is going to be a perfect fit for everybody, um, and so yeah, sometimes right. it's 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 good to recognize that it wasn't us, it was you know it wasn't the right method or the right person,
0: right what about talk therapy has that been shown to be effective or no?
1: so it can be um one of the one of the talk therapy um, modalities that i do like well cuz i mean th- there are a few like there's like there's narrative therapy which i'm not trained in myself um but i've seen some evidence that that can be helpful um cognitive processing therapy is one therapy that i was it was, I think the only trauma therapy that I was trained in during my masters. Um, and that one, uh, has been demonstrated to have some effectiveness as well. Um, and so there are some talk therapies that are really helpful. Um, but you know, like, like one of your listeners said, um, sometimes it is best for us to have, you know, things like EMDR, things that allow us to kind of yep. connect in a way that doesn't involve me needing to talk so much. Um, Yeah especially
0: I think in, in my case, for example, so my primary language was PA Dutch and I didn't have words to express the trauma. And so for me, like I didn't have words because I also, there's that other thing, that word I can't say, but I can see the word right. That one. Mm -hmm. Um, That I also have is like, sometimes I, I, I do, I do struggle with selective mutism and, I know it says selective, but it's really not. But also that's a whole other conversation. But regardless, like that's part of why I think that EMDR work for me is because I didn't have to verbalize all of those things.
1: Right. And I mean, we process things so much more quickly when they're nonverbal as well. So, I mean, you know, that while that can be like a like a limitation, you know, it might have been difficult to do a different modality because of that you know, that also led to this experience of being able to process things nonverbally, which is so quick. Like I can think of things way faster than I can say them. And mm-hmm. so we can get to some of these things in a, a much quicker way. Um, and then, you know, so every once in a while, the therapist checks in, where are we at? What are we doing? Yep. How are we feeling? Let's hop back yep. in.
0: So, to be clear, like what you're saying is also that neurodivergent, can neurodiver, being neurodivergent can affect how you handle trauma.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, th- one of the things um, I'm actually talking about on TikTok right now is uh, neurodivergency and trauma um, because they do kind of play into each other uh, in a lot of ways, um, not only because they have symptoms that look a lot like each other, like I mentioned earlier, you know, ADHD and, uh, and PTSD can look similar and there's overlap with autism and PTSD, but some of the overlap can also feed into one another. Like, it, for for instance, somebody who is consistently really overstimulated by a typical school environment, you know, if they are consistently over, overstimulated by that environment, and as a result of trauma, they are also hypervigilant pretty often. Those two things directly feed into one another. And so I am, it, it's, it's the going over this top edge can happen a lot more quickly um, because I have both of these, both of these things present. Um, And so, yeah.
0: So with that being said, like the more trauma therapy that I did, the more I realized and, and was able to be a person who does stim, but like in the same token, I still did masking and the masking Mm -hmm. is quite a horrendous burden for anybody but regardless I just want to say like sometimes the more trauma therapy we do the more we're able to actually see ourselves as we really are and embrace who we are and the things that actually do um, help re-regulate us because what can Mm re-regulate me might look different for Rob but it might also look completely different from somebody that's neurotypical
1: right Absolutely.
0: And then furthermore, let's talk about this. What does it feel like to be a trauma therapist after experiencing trauma?
1: Uh, it's It can be very helpful at times. Um, you know, I, am, I, I spend a lot of my weekends doing a lot of trainings, trying to learn more things, doing more research. And so sometimes it helps me to better understand kind of where I'm at with things. Um, at the same time, I have to be, consistently aware of the things that trigger me and how things affect me. And that was a really big focus of the therapy that I did with myself. And I've said it before, I will say it again. I think every therapist needs to have a therapist because we have those things that we don't realize bother us. Um, Or we have those things that we are fully aware bother us and we need to, you know, it's important for us to be able to do that work so that we can, we can work through them. Um, But it's, I feel like it has, it's, it's difficult for me to compare it to not having trauma because I don't know what that's like, but it's like, I find that it helps for me to empathize. It it helps me to empathize a lot. And it helps me to look at things through a trauma informed lens a lot more because I see things that like, I work with a lot of kids and a lot of adolescents And I see them do something or I see them act in a certain way. And my immediate reaction isn't, that's a real problem that they're doing that behavior. You know, I immediately go to, I wonder where they learned to start doing that. I wonder how this is adaptive for them, what this helps them to survive. And, you know, I I find that that has been very helpful for me personally and being able to be, you know, as as helpful as I want to be.
0: That's pretty amazing, and it's actually showing a really big difference in the way that some people respond to children who they may see as acting out or rebellious or disobedient or, you know, the list is endless. But regardless, like it's it shows a completely different approach, which is more curiosity-based towards what's happening in this child's life, how can we help this child reach a safe place in their life, and what can we do to support them? Is that correct? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So one of our listeners asks, have you found that working as a trauma therapist inadvertently helps you process your own trauma?
1: It, it does sometimes. Um, you know, like sometimes in the in the growing process of clients, you know, I, I can hear them have, you know, kind of a realization of something or, you know, they can work through a certain process. And I think, hmm, you know, that that seems kind of applicable to what, to, to what I've been trying to work through myself. And um, then of course, learning the skills, practicing the skills. Cause you know, a lot of these trainings involve role plays involve participation, but I also just, I try to get into it and just really, you know, when I'm, when I'm sitting in a training, there's like therapist, Rob, who is watching this and trying to get everything and taking notes. And then there's me, Rob, <laughs> who's, you know, trying to <laughs> listen to this. And I'm like, that that's it that, that makes,
0: makes sense.
1: sense yes and yeah. so that part is very helpful thank you
0: thank you for sharing that uh, because i think also another thing that i do want to ask you and feel free to not answer this but okay. you know do you have like specific like um what there's a word for it that i can't think of man why is english my second language um but it's kind of like intentional. That's the word. Do you have like intentional self-care that you do? Because earlier you were talking about having like a therapist and all of that. And that's, that's important. Mm -hmm. I will, I will, I will wholeheartedly support that. But also, Mm -hmm. do you practice any form of like intentional
1: self-care? Absolutely. Um, So, this is both as just you know self-care thing as well as just you know when i was trying to work through substance abuse it was something that really helped me to keep on track um but uh exercise is very important for me um i have been pretty consistently getting exercise every morning um 15 Um, and so you know it, it it helped me with substance abuse because you know if I have to wake up at five in the morning, I can't be using the night before, you know, I have to be able to go to bed. And if I go to bed early, that means I don't have the opportunity to use. And then just the general physical health stuff, you know, if I want to meet my workout goals, then I can't use there either. And I consistently do this now every morning, Um, you know, the, the, the threat of using while it is, you know, it can Mm -hmm. be there for the rest of my life. It's, it's not as present in my mind. Now it's just that I continuously do that because that is like my meditation. You know, when I go to the gym and I start doing any kind of exercise, it is just me and my body. And it's just us sitting here and and, and doing this. Um, I also do my best to practice boundaries with what I do. Um, you know, when I get, because I'm a, I'm a community-based therapist, and so I meet people at home, at school, all those places. And Um, when I'm driving, I listen to a podcast or listen to music. Sometimes I need way less stimulation and I'll just sit in a silent car and I'll drive. Um, and when I get home, I do my best to come back to my peaceful kind of area and just recharge and allow myself to just kind of exist in my space for a little while. Um, and luckily my partner's very wonderful with allowing me to, you know, again, be who I am in this environment. I don't need to mask for anybody. I don't need to, I don't need to be anything. And I can just allow myself to exist and just, yeah, take care of myself, connect with myself a little bit.
0: It almost sounds like part of your self-care is ensuring that you physically acknowledge and mentally acknowledge that when you return to your home, you are back in a safe place. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, this is, this is my spot and, uh, it helps me to be able to, yeah, just be at peace for a little while.
0: That's a, that's a great practice to share. I mean, I, for one, I kind of have that same, um, mentality about my home. My home is my safe place. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm very careful who I invite to my home because my home is my safe place. Like, you know, like that's my, my, it's, this is my, my safety. And I'm lucky too, because I do have familial support and, and my partner Mm -hmm. is wonderful with that. Somebody asks, um, is it difficult to decompress after administering therapy that may be triggering?
1: Uh, yes, yes. Um, there can be days where, um, there can be days and there can be situations that are Uh, a bit more difficult than others. Um, Compartmentalization is a big thing with therapy. And because I mean, you have to go from, you know, you're talking to this person, and then 10 minutes later, you're talking to somebody totally different, who's in a totally different place and has totally different things to focus on. And so you have to be able to stop thinking about the other thing, and come back to this, Um, which is tough. Um, But there are, you know, there are days where, you know, I will leave a session, I'll get in my car and I'll start driving and I will cry my eyes out um, because something will just really hit me in some kind of way. Um, And that could be both a positive and a negative sometimes, you know, sometimes it is just that that was a lot to deal with. That was a lot to sit through and to, to, to just be present with. And sometimes it can be a positive of just like, I can't believe that that person got to the place where they got to. And, you know, it can be that kind of rewarding cry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and when I was first starting out, it hit me far more than it does nowadays. Um, especially like the, the first internship that I did as a part of my master's was in, was in the hospital. And so I was doing crisis assessments and I was working with people who are inpatient and, um, you know, I was, you know, for, 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 you to end up in the hospital, you're going through a lot. Um, and so it, taught me very early how to do this and how to take care of myself and how to, you know, okay, I'm going to bring this experience in with a breath, I'm going to hold on to it. And I'm going to release it with the next one. And I'm going to do that as many times as I need to, to kind of work through this. And, um, I had to teach myself that me doing that is not, it doesn't mean that I don't care and it doesn't mean that I'm not human and for a while, it kind of worried me when I was getting good at it, because I started to worry about, you know, am I a sociopath? And it got to the point of just like, no, like, this is what you're, is necessary for you. This is how you you cope through this. And so the decompression can be difficult at times, um, but I find that you, you get better at it and you can recognize that when you're hearing the difficult things, it means that you've Managed to find a way to help this person who feeling safe, feeling like they can trust people. You have helped them to get to the point where they trusted you with that information. And when you can look at it through that lens, it, it takes, it, it changes the framing that you look at it in.
0: This is true.
1: I want to also point out like one of the things where we talk
0: about like coping skills, When you talk about the breath, the breath Mm -hmm. thing does not work for me. Yeah, But I have another thing that I do that, like, allows Mm -hmm. me to, like, come back. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's really interesting. Like, I, I find it really helpful for me. To remember, uh, like what's around me and I count like things Mm. that are around me, things that I feel, things that I hear, things that I can touch. Um, Sometimes I'll eat ice. Sometimes I'll Mm -hmm. like, you know, like those kinds of things, like just what can I feel? And that helps me come back to the present just like that. But in the same token, it's also indicative of like how coping skills can vary so widely Mm -hmm. amongst trauma survivors, wouldn't you say?
1: Absolutely. Um, And and I I like a lot of those, uh, a lot of those skills myself. Um, The the ice one is one that I use a lot, especially when I'm like really dysregulated that I can't think about anything else if I got an ice cube in my mouth. (laughs) 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 Uh, So, yeah, and it's um, I think it's important for clinicians to recognize, too, because it's, you know, if you if you're talking about relaxation skills or something and then you offer one and the client says that didn't really work for me. You got to make sure your ego doesn't come into play there and you're able to recognize like that didn't work for them, but there are other yep. things. And it's, nope. it's, so, me, it's not them, <clears throat> it's the skill. It's,
0: and so we know. just have to find a different skill that, that you can really try. Is. And truthfully, some of it is trial and error, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. we keep trying different things until we find the one that works for us or the ones that work for us. And then we can put them in our toolbox of skills. And now mm-hmm. we've acquired a skill that helps us to be able to be Mm -hmm. present today, right here, right now in this conversation with Rob, despite whatever happened yesterday, whatever Mm -hmm. happened last night in my night terrors, whatever happened, you know, 15 years ago that I relived yesterday doesn't matter because Mm -hmm. I'm here and I get to have this conversation with you about trauma and neurodivergence and coping skills. And that's quite frankly, wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. I do have one final question for you. Sure. So if you could go back and say anything to your younger self or somebody in the position you were in as your younger self, what would you say to them?
1: Um, man, um, I had that conversation I have that conversation sometimes and I do, you know, the, the parts work of connecting with that inner child. Um, and I don't know, there, there are a lot of things. I think one of the biggest just being that like, you know, that this is not your fault, that you did not do anything to create this. You bear no responsibility in what is going on. Um, and I think being able to, I, I, I would want to be able to ask myself to really forgive myself um, for some of the ways that I have adapted that, you know, I continuously, you know, looked down on. And that was one of the biggest, I think, ways that I had that conversation with my inner child. It was uh, one of the, the first time I ever connected with my inner child. It was in a meditation, in a recovery group that I, that I was a part of. Um, as a participant and um, I remember so vividly being able to sit with that kid and the kid was telling me that you know it's okay, you know the things that you did you were doing to keep yourself alive um, And even when I think about it now, it, it just it really gets me and that's something that I hold on to a lot. And so people, it's so important to understand that we don't do the things that we do for no reason whatsoever. And if you engage in substance abuse, if you isolate yourself from time to time, if, you know, whatever it is that you do to, to get through this, that is you attempting to survive. And it is so important that you are able to recognize that all you want to do is be alive. And that's at the root of, what, of a lot of what we do. Thank you for that. I, I just like
0: wanna say too, like one of our listeners said, I think these various coping skills help our bodies remember that we're safe and that is so helpful. Um, this is true. I also want to say that, you know, I I think I would I would also have a message for anybody who is suffering or has experienced um this kind of trauma that we're really discussing here especially if you experienced it as a child or if you're neurodivergent or you know whatever the case may be number 1 i would say you are a worthy whole valid human being you are you are perfectly imperfect even when you feel broken you are still whole i know it's a, it's a dichotomy but at the end of the day You are not unworthy of basic human rights. You are not unworthy of a safe environment. You deserve safety. You are enough. And you deserve to live a meaningful life. It is so important that we find a way to connect with ourselves and to be able to validate ourselves as valid. And I also want to say, you know, you'll find a way. You'll find a way. And you know what else? Your way doesn't have to be my way. Your way has to be the right way for you. And you got this. So be you. With that being said, I'd like to um, thank our Patreon subscribers. I'd like to thank the rest of the Misfit Amish. For supporting this, I'd like to thank all of our listeners and our commenters for participating in this conversation. We appreciate you and we couldn't do this without you. And most of all, I'd like to thank Rob for coming on here and being so open about all of the things that affected you, especially the neurodivergent part. And I'm like really, really grateful that I get to have conversations like these. Would you like to have a goodbye message?
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you everybody for uh, yeah for being here for listening and yeah. Take care of yourselves. All righty.